You never know what the Lord is doing in somebody's life. Acts chapter 10, would you join me? If, you got, uh, if you're joining us online, thank you for being with us. So if you're in-house, you've got a Bible in your hand, you got it on your tablet, you got it on your phone, you're like me, you got uh, leather and paper and ink like that, so uh, you're going to want to have that in front of you this morning. Um, so we're in Acts chapter 10, we've been going through the book of Acts, uh, and this is a narrative, right? So uh, this chapter is building very much, it's one long narrative, um, very important chapter, and I know most of you have been here the last two weeks, um, and even if that is true, we still need a little bit of review, but I also know that every week there's some folks that haven't been here for any of that, and there's no way possible I can give all of the background and get us back up uh, to really set the stage for verse 23, but Lord willing, we're going to try to look at verses 23 to 33 this morning. So here's the scene. Let's do this quickly. Let's get our minds ready. Uh, it's the early church, uh, and some barriers have been falling, right? And some barriers have been coming down between Christians, even, and God's people. And so what, what we've been learning for 10 chapters now is that Judean Jews are no better than Galilean Jews, so that wall's been removed. And then we learned that native-born Jews, Jews born in the land of Israel, are not better than Hellenistic Jews who were born outside of the land of Israel. Jews, still nonetheless, but these native-born are not better than them. They're not, so that wall has come down. And then we've learned that there's this other wall uh, between, that existed between Jews and Samaritans, so Jews and half-Jews. And so the Samaritans have come into the church, trusted Jesus as Savior. And so that wall has come down. But now what we've been finding in this chapter, the reason it's so key, is the last wall and the biggest one that existed between people, God's people in the Old Testament and becoming the church in the New Testament. Remember, we're looking at 2,000 years ago in our text. So there may be somebody here, you're like, I know hardly anything about the Bible. What we're about to read is playing off of the times where Jesus has just left the earth. All they had was the Old Testament. They had none of the New Testament in print. They were living it. It had to be written, right? So we're going back to that time period. And so the last wall of partition that needs to come down between God's people is between Jews and Gentiles. And what we're going to learn by the end of the chapter is Jews are not better than Gentiles in the church. But there's a process that God had to make that really clear. And so what we found is, this is important, at this point, the church is probably seven, eight, ten years old. The church, these people who've trusted Jesus as Savior, they've moved out from under the shadowy faith of the sacrificial system. They've moved on from that. They're putting their faith and trust in Jesus as Savior, and they're saved, and they're now part of the church, the body of Christ, the spiritual body of Christ. And so what we found is from day one at the day of Pentecost, there were Gentiles, born Gentiles, who had become Jews, by faith in the Jewish system, becoming baptized to be a Jew, to transition as a Jew. And if they were males, being circumcised to become a full-fledged Jew. And then they heard the gospel about Jesus and became a Christian. That already existed. This is unique and new and so important because we're finding Gentiles are going to become Christians without having to take the step of becoming Jewish. And here's how God has done it. So we've spent two weeks looking at how God has prepared two key men. First of all, we noticed our test case, right? This man's name is Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. He's over 100 soldiers. He's a commander in their army. Listen, he's a very good man, a moral man. He's lost. He's unsaved. He's on his way to hell, but a very good man. You would love to have him as your neighbor. But he's really generous to the Jews, 
God in his providence has brought this man to be post on a post stationed in the land of Israel. And in doing that, he's been exposed to Judaism. And it's hitting true in his heart. And he's abandoning his old pagan religion. And he's actually going down to the Jewish synagogue. They let him sit in the back. He's a God-fearer, but he's not yet a Jew. Something's just not right. He knows that becoming a Jew is just not going to do it. But he doesn't know how to get saved. He doesn't know how, how to have a right relationship with the Lord. And so he's going and he's listening. And he gives, he gives to the Jews. He's generous. The poor among them, he helps them out. And he prays. He offers prayers to God. And he kind of falls in line, apparently, with the times of the day that the Jews pray. And so he's religious. He's just lost. He's a good moral guy. He's just lost. He doesn't know what to do. And he's praying. And he's being generous. And he's going and studying the Bible. And he's hearing it taught. And then God, one day around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, sends an angel. And an angel shows up in his house and says, Cornelius, hey... All that generosity you've been doing, God's taking notice of it because you've been blessing the Jews. And so God's going to bless you for that specific thing. But also your prayer has been heard. And so the angel says, here's the answer. You, you need to send to the town 30 miles away. Send some men down. Bring a man named Peter. His name is Simon Peter. Ask him to come up here and he'll tell you what you need to do. And so he sends three men and off they go. That's day one. Okay, that's day one. On day two, so we're assuming they're leaving somewhere Late in the afternoon, on day one, Cornelius has a vision, sends his men, off they go, there's three of them. Day two, they actually arrive down in Joppa, 30 miles away, and they show up to the house. They're making their way over to this house where Peter is at. Peter has no idea that they're on their way. He has no clue, but around noon, 12 o'clock, Peter goes up on the rooftop. They're making food in the house, so this is his escape to just get some alone, silent solitude with God. He's praying, but he falls into a trance. It's very important. He falls into a trance, and God gives him a vision of this giant sheet. I mean, giant sheet that is kind of held by its four corners upside down, and it's full of animals. And the sheet comes down, and it opens up, and it's full of all kinds of animals, all kinds of reptiles, all kinds of birds. And by all kinds, we mean what the Jews considered clean and unclean. And remember, the Old Testament book of Leviticus told them what were clean animals they could eat and what were unclean. And there's a mixture. And the strangest thing happened on this roof. God's voice tells Peter to get up off his knees from praying, go kill some of those animals and start eating them. But there's unclean animals among them. And he rejects. And he says, not so, Lord. I'm not going to do it because I've never eaten anything that's unclean. I'm a good kosher Jew. I don't eat unclean animals. And I'm not starting now. Notice what he said. By no means, Lord. And then the Lord actually answers back in this vision on the rooftop. And he says, whoa, what God has called clean, don't you call common. And we learned last week what God was saying is, Peter, I'm not asking you to eat unclean animals. I'm telling you to eat, eat animals that I have now made clean. I have lifted the prohibition against them. I've abolished the dietary laws. And we saw it really started back in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus had already done this. And then we saw it reiterated in the book of Acts historically. And then we saw last week that the, that the dietary laws have been abolished. We saw that bore out in like three of the New Testament doctrinal books of, of the epistles. And so the Lord says to him again, Whoa, rise, Peter, uh, kill and eat. So three times this happens, and apparently three times Peter resists. No, I'm not doing it. I'm not eating unclean animals. And then the vision is taken away. And he's on this rooftop, and he's... I'm almost done with the review. He's on this rooftop, and he's really contemplating. He's perplexed. What is the meaning of this? Why would God tell me to eat unclean animals? 
We now know what was going on, but at the point at that time, he didn't know what was going on. Meanwhile, the three men sent from Cornelius that Peter has no idea they're on their way. They've made their way to the gate, literally at this other man's house. And they're asking, hey, do you happen to have a guy here? We're supposed to find a guy named Simon Peter, and we're supposed to meet with him. Peter has no clue they're there. He's talking and praying and pondering and thinking and meditating on this vision. And then the Holy Spirit of God tells Peter, Peter, there are three men who are looking for you. Hey, pay attention. Peter, three men are looking for you. I want you to get up, go down, and you're going to accompany them. And I want you to do this without any hesitation. I don't want any check in your spirit. I don't want you to feel dirty. I have sent these men. This is from me. This is my will. I want you to go with these men. And so having heard that, just saw this vision, heard this command of God, he comes down off the roof and he says, I'm the one you're looking for. What are you guys here for? And they say, hey, our master, this man named Cornelius, he's a really good man. He had this vision of an angel who said, we were supposed to come down here to this city 30 miles away and we're supposed to bring you back with, with us and you're supposed to tell him something. And so Peter says, verse 23, would you look at it? There's going to be lots of little sentences here. As you see in your handout, we have five points today, not our normal three. So he invited them in to be his guests. That is so easy to read that sentence and we'll not get the impact of it. You got to understand, Jews have nothing to do with Gentiles. And so having seen the vision, not really connecting the dots, what does that mean? And what God was showing him is, I'm changing the rules about unclean animals, but really the bigger picture is... It's my stance now is that I'm inviting what you would formerly call unclean Gentiles. They are now being brought into the church. And he hadn't made the connection until finally the Holy Spirit says, there's these three guys and you're going to go down and you go with them. And don't feel dirty. Don't, don't have a, a guilty conscience. I've sent them. And he comes down. They say who they are in verse 23. So he invited them in. Remember, it's between 12 and 1. He invites them in to be his guests. And we're not really sure why. It kind of sounds odd, doesn't it? The next day, this is now day three. Everybody tracking with the time? Day one, Cornelius has a vision, sends his men out. Day two, they actually arrive around noon. Tells me they're moving on an animal. They're moving pretty quick. Either that or they're traveling through the night. Something They're moving quick. They're there the next day. They finally encounter. Peter invites them in, but they don't leave that night. Yes, we'll go with you. So he invites them in to be his guest. The next day, he rose. And went away with him. Feel the weight of that. He went away with him. He accompanies these Gentiles. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Feel the weight of that. Everybody with me? Come on in the house. Here comes Gentiles in Peter's house that he's renting and lodging in. Next day he goes with the Gentiles. And there's some Christian Jews in the church at Joppa. They go with him. And he's with them. And off they go. So here they go. And now verse 24. And the following day. Is everybody noticing that? We're now on day four. Day one, Cornelius' vision. Day two, his men get to Peter's house. Peter invites them in the house. They stay overnight. Day three, at some point they leave. But they don't make it all the way up there. And so they have to stay over to the next day. And we're going to find out in a moment. They're not going to actually get to their destination until three o'clock in the afternoon. So something is delaying all the traveling. I think I have an idea. Reading between the lines. Here we go. And on the following day, which is day four, they entered Caesarea. So here finally, these three men, Peter and this group of men from the church in Joppa. 
these Jewish Christians. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So he knows about the time they're going to arrive. He's already, there's, a, there's a group of people waiting. When Peter entered, and the idea is like, obviously there's now, he's here. So Peter entered, it's, it's not real clear the wording. Is he actually in the house? Is he right at the door? Is he just outside? But as Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Picture that. He's here. Which one of you guys? Which one's Peter? And that's it. He falls down at his feet and he starts worshipping Peter. Poor Cornelius. This is all he knows to do. But Peter lifted him up, touching the Gentile at his door. Peter lifted, lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. I'm just a man. I'm, I'm a man. Stop. And as he talked with him, so they have some kind of conversation at the door area. He went in and found many persons gathered. Like, whoa. Didn't know all you guys were going to be here. And he said to them, Peter's now talking to the Gentiles in this house. You yourselves, get verse 28, it's important. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. You guys do know how unlawful it is for Jews to do what I'm doing. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The point of the vision and the point of the command of Christ is now sinking in. He's getting it. He's been meditating on it. He's there. He knows what's going on. I, this, you know we don't do what I'm doing. But God has shown me. I cannot call you guys common or unclean. So when I was sit, sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. This is a strange, isn't this a little strange if you've been tracking with this whole time? Like, I got to ask you, why did, I, I think, I, all I can gather is it's probably something like this. Cornelius, I've heard their version. I just need to hear it from you. If we're really going to do this thing, what's actually happening? What's going on? In verse 30, Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, so we know it's 3 o'clock because that's when that time happened. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house, and at the ninth hour, at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. We know this, this, is, this is what it looked like. This angel takes the form of a man in bright clothing. So here's going to, you want to know what happened? It was about this time of the day. I was standing right over there, and he was standing right there. And in verse 31, this angel said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. He tells me my prayer has been heard, my alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That's what's going on. And so that's today's text. Hopefully we get through all five of these. Let's notice number one this morning. Would you notice with me number one? Verse 23, we're obviously making a big deal. Already have last week about the first part of verse 23 that he invited him in his house. We'll come back to that. But we need to notice the second part of verse 23 because there's a seemingly 
small but a very key and very important decision, important detail that we don't need to just blow right by. Wouldn't it be so easy just to read this and go, hey, I'm who you're looking for. What do you guys need? Well, our master Cornelius and this and this and this happened. And oh, okay, come on in. The next day he left and then they got to, court, got to Caesarea and he went in. Wouldn't it be so easy to just read it that way or to read it this way? So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him and off they go. But don't miss the second part. I don't know how this happened. I don't know. I, if you ask me, like Jeff, if. If this all happened, Peter's vision happens between 12 and 1. He invites them in. Then why don't they go ahead and get a head start? And why do they not get there until like two days later at 3 p.m.? I think it's something to do with these men. And so I want to offer to you. Again, I can't say this definitively. I'm trying to think this week, like, how did that go down for Peter to go to these Christian Jewish brothers in Christ at the Joppa church how did they go down that they end up becoming? We find out in chapter 11, verse 12, that there's six of them. There's six of these men, and they're going to accompany him. Does he go up to them and say something along this line? Hey, guys, listen. Uh, hey, y'all come on in. I need you to get word. Go get so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Tell them to come here. Or you guys make yourself at home. I'll be right back in a little bit. i got to go meet some men. Hey, guys, did it go like this? Hey, guys, listen. I need you to go with me. What do you mean, go where? I'm going up, I'm going to Caesarea, something as big is happening, I need you, yeah, but I've got my kids' little league game tomorrow, you, you, you got to not do that, yeah, but I told my wife, I, you, you need to be there, you got to go with me, is that how it happens, or, so, so get, I think one of two things, either, pay attention here, either God lets Peter have an, an insight and foresight and wisdom to realize how important it's going to be that these six men are there when it all goes down at the end of chapter 10, which we've not even read yet, how important it is for them to be there. Does God show Peter that? Very well, maybe. Maybe it was. I need you to be there. This is important. Or is it this? Peter has no clue. Maybe Peter is just doing, maybe God just prompts his heart and his mind. Hey, guys, I'm heading up to Caesarea. I'm going to make an important meeting. Any of you want to go? I'll go. Anytime to hang around you, Peter. All right, just throwing it out. I don't know which of the two. You may say, surely it has to be the first option. Would you look at the screen? Psalm 37. Look at the screen. Psalm 37. Uh, 37. Look at verse 23 on the screen. Watch it. Look at it. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. So I'm talking about... Did the providence of God, which we finished on last week, did God in his providence just prompt Peter to do something and set in motion something? He has no idea how important it is. And that's what ends up actually happening. In other words, here Peter is just delighting in the Lord, and the Lord is just establishing all of the steps, and God is making it happen. And Peter has no, I don't know. Does either Peter seize it? Man, this is important. Got to have this. Or, hey guys, you want to go? Sure, yeah. And off they go. Now, if you're listening and you're saying, what is the big deal if they went or not? So some guys went with Peter. Ivor Powell writes the following. Talking about what happens at the end of chapter 10, Powell writes, quote, hear it, hear it, hear it, taste it. What was about to take place would have repercussions throughout the entire church. Legalists would violently object to the welcoming of uncircumcised Gentiles. This is coming. This is going to run through the rest of the New Testament. 
Let me say that again. Legalists are going to violently object to the welcoming of uncircumcised. Hey, they can't come in the church. He continues. Emissaries. This is not on your handout, but listen to what Powell writes. Emissaries insisting on the obedience to the commandments of Moses would trouble the church for many generations. Y'all getting that? Why is it important that these six guys go? Again, legalists will violently object to the welcoming of uncircumcised Gentiles, emissaries, people in the church, saved, unsaved, living in among God's people. They will be insisting on the obedience to the commandments of Moses. They would trouble the church for many generations. Let me translate that. But the Bible says, and they'd be able to point. No, the Bible says they have to be circumcised. And so Powell writes, Peter would need reliable witnesses to corroborate his testimony. Does he know how important? Six men end up going with him. Something big is going to happen at the end of the chapter. Something new. Would it have technically been enough for Peter to be there and to experience it, to see it, and to hear it? Notice I just said, see and hear. Would it be enough? Peter, yes, Peter could tell the truth. Could God have sent one other guy? Hey, take him. And so that way, one other guy said, I was there too. Peter's not lying. He's telling the truth. Let every word be established by the mouth of two or three. God doesn't send two or three. He ends up letting like this perfect number, seven men, see what's going to happen. There's an old saying. Some of you may know it. It says, a stitch in time saves Nine. You ever heard that? Some of you be like, what? So if you have something that tears, if you put a stitch on that little tear in time, one stitch will do. A stitch in time saves nine. If you don't get that stitch in there in time, well, the rip keeps growing and growing. You're going to need nine stitches later on. Did God tell him how important this is? Or does Peter just like, hey, you guys want to go? Yeah, come on along. Sure, I don't think God will mind. Oh, God doesn't mind. This is important. Number two. Would you notice in verses 24 and 25, Cornelius' love and Cornelius' humility. Did you see it? Let's revisit those two verses. 24 and 25, I want you to see his love. I like this guy. I really do. I like Cornelius. I'm looking forward to meeting him. He's a really great man. This is all we have is chapter 10 and 11 that talks about him. Look at verse 24. So on the morrow, uh, on the following day, they entered Caesarea. So they get to Caesarea, and there's ten of them, right? Everybody with me? There's three men that were sent from Cornelius. There's Peter, and there's other, here comes ten men. Verse number 24, and on the following day, this is day four, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Does everybody very clearly see Cornelius' love and his humility? He's invited his friends. Why are they here? Because he loves them. He knows the message of salvation is going to be given today, and you need to be at my house. Now again, I want you to go with me. Use your mind. I'm trying to think. Like Peter in that conversation with those six guys. What do the conversations of Cornelius and his family, how does that go down? 
He's got a couple of days, and he's rounding up people, and he ends up very successful. How far away did they live? Does he call them all together? Or does he go around town? Hey, Uncle so-and-so, I need you and your wife and Aunt so-and-so. You've got to bring the kids. You need to be at my house on such and such a day. Why? It's a surprise. Is that what he does? Over here, so-and-so. Hey, cousin so-and-so, you and your kid, got to get to my house, and you need to be there on such and such a day. Why? I can't tell you. I can't tell you just... I don't believe that's what happened. That is not what happened. You say, what do you think happened? Would you look at verse 33? Look at verse 33. It's important. As Cornelius is giving his, Peter wants to know, hey, tell me how it went down. Look at the end of what we read a while ago because here's our clue. Cornelius tells Peter, so I have sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Are y'all thinking? What does this tell you? They know why they're there. They, know, they are expecting something. This tells me that as Cornelius is going around rounding up his relatives and close friends, he's telling them about the angel. Did you see that? It doesn't say that, but do y'all feel that? Hey, you need to be at my house. Why? Yesterday, or to this one, two days ago, or three days ago, or yes, four days ago. However long, he's busy. I was praying. Yeah, I know you pray all the time, man. You're really getting into that, that, that Jewish stuff. That's good. For, no, listen. An angel showed up at my house, and they're like, what? An angel showed up, and he said this and this and this. I've sent my men. There's going to be a man named Peter. I, I didn't know he existed. I've never met him in my life, but he's on his way, and he's going to come. And you need to be at my house. Will you be there? Yes. Wow, if you saw that, think about that. What does that say? That says volumes about this man's character. What kind of character do you have to go around and tell people, I saw an angel and you need to be at my house because something's big. And they actually respond and show up. That's big time. That tells me this man is known as an honest man. Uncle Cornelius, if you say that's what happened, then I'm not missing it. I love this guy. Also, while you're writing that, do you know who else has impeccable reputation in the text and it's really clear? It's Peter. Hang with me. I know you're writing. Watch this. Peter, you say, why the delay between the noon vision and, and letting the guys in the house, and apparently they leave so late the third day that they don't make it all the way there. Why the delay? As he's rounding up these six Jewish brothers in Christ, I'm going to offer to you that he had to tell them what happened on the roof. Other, think about it. Think of the position. Watch this. If Peter goes with the Gentiles... And the six brothers, Jewish brothers in the church, go with Peter. Watch. If he's with the Gentiles and they're with him, then they're with the Gentiles. We're with you. Where are we going? Why are they then? Aren't they like? And where are we heading? We're heading to a Gentile's house. Whoa. I don't know, what, I don't know if you got off your rocker or not, Peter, but we don't do. No, that's not what happened. So this tells me. Hey, guys, listen. Come here. On a rooftop, I saw this. What? And I heard this three times. And then God told me this. And sure enough, I go down, and they were three guys. And they told me this. And I've sent, and, and this happened, and now I'm getting ready to go to that, this man's house. I've never been there, but I'm going to meet this guy named Cornelius, and you need to come. We're going to be traveling with Gentiles? Yeah. Okay. If you say you, you've heard from God. Then I trust you. Knowing we don't do that. 
but we're going to do what we don't do. Because you say you've heard from God. Is everybody feeling this? God could have worked it where literally just Peter meets just Cornelius, but he doesn't do that. Peter comes with six Jewish brothers in Christ, and here Cornelius has a house full of relatives and close friends. MacArthur gives a great quote. He writes, their presence, these relatives and close friends of Cornelius, their presence was a crucial arrangement of divine providence using the will of Cornelius. If you were here at the end last week, we finished with a lot, and I actually could sense it was hitting a nerve with certain people. And we talked about how God is controlling all things. MacArthur is all over it here when he writes this. The family and friends of Cornelius being present, their presence was a crucial arrangement of divine providence using the will of Cornelius. Why are you out inviting them? Do you realize how important it is? I have no clue. All I know is that the message of salvation is going to be given. I love my family. I'm, I, my, I want them there. And God is using this man's will. He has no clue how big it is. MacArthur concludes. Hang with me. If only Cornelius were saved. Picture that. Just him. The Jerusalem church may have considered him an aberration. Hey guys, listen. I led a Gentile to the Lord. Yeah, right. We've had a lot of Jewish Gentile proselytes. No, 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 no. I let a Gentile who's not a proselyte. What? Nine by that. What are you saying? Come here. Tell them what you just. Guys, a Gentile, I saw it. I heard it. I shared. It worked. I shared the gospel. He actually believed. He is a true. No. MacArthur's right. If only Cornelius were saved, the Jerusalem church may have considered him. Don't believe it. Or, okay, he must be special. But if a group of Gentiles were saved, however, they, the Jerusalem church, would have to accept that God was including Gentiles into the church. And so now we see, wow, it is vital that all of these people are present at the end of chapter 10. A big event. So now, I'm still talking about the love of Cornelius. In a moment, I'm going to talk about his humility. Deanna and I spent 25 minutes talking about this next paragraph that I'm going to offer to you yesterday morning. I'll give you a moment. Write it quickly. Right? Like, fly. Hopefully write fast. I'm the world's slowest reader. I'm the world's slowest writer. Definitely the slowest in this building, I promise you. I'm going to offer some thoughts to you and... I want you to know that I don't say this with any kind of mean spirit. Think about what just happened. This man Cornelius gets this vision, sends men obediently, and he calls his family and close relatives because he wants them there. I'm going to offer to you that I find, and I'm guilty myself, of a strange dynamic that I believe is among many, many, many Christians, many Christians in America, many Christians in South Carolina, no doubt some Christians in this room. There's a strange dynamic. It is this. Many Christians genuinely believe, and I mean genuinely believe what the Bible says about God, about Jesus, 
believe it. Yes. Do you put them on a lie detector? They believe what the Bible says about God, about Jesus, about heaven. They believe what the Bible says about hell. They believe. They believe it. What the Bible says that there is heaven, and if you're there, it's forever and ever for eternity. And there is hell, and it is for eternity. And those are the only two. And they believe. They really believe. Faith in Jesus is the one and only way to go to heaven. The one and only way to go to heaven. The one and only way to escape eternal hell. They believe all of that. But here's the strange dynamic. Somehow, many Christians who believe that feel no urgency to share that information with the people they love the most. Am I lying? I'm not lying. This is weird. Isn't that weird? Think about that. I'm right now describing many of us in the room. We believe God, Jesus, the one way of salvation, heaven, hell. We believe it. But somehow we're not urgently sharing this with the people we love the most. I mean our immediate, I mean personally sharing it. So I thought about that. Why is that the case? My number one answer I came up with this is probably people don't feel comfortable. They don't have a lot of confidence in their ability to share the gospel message accurately. This is not my thing. If that is true, I ask another question. If you really believe that, and if we really believe that, if they out there really believe that, wouldn't they spend their entire life, if need be, getting an understanding of this truth so that they can share it with the people they absolutely love the most? This is a strange thing. I've been guilty of this myself. Like, I believe it. I really believe. One way to heaven. Heaven. Hell. And yet, why no urgency? It's a strange dynamic. I want you to understand my heart here. I am not saying this to question your love for your immediate family and your close friends. You love your family and friends just as much as I love mine. I am not saying this to make you feel guilty like, that's me. I do believe it, and yet it doesn't somehow translate into urgency. I've never told my immediate family about the gospel. And yeah, I'm under that category of, I don't feel comfortable. I just trust someone else will do it. Why have I never? Here's a man who knows the message of salvation is going to be. He gets his family together. He insists upon it, and they end up there. Like, how do we, I don't say this to condemn you this morning. You say, then what is your, and this was Deanna's point, like, what, what do you want to happen as a result of this? Number one, I want us to be enlightened. Like, wait, that is a strange thing. And some of us would have to say, that's me. What I really hope would happen is that you would be inspired by this man, Cornelius, and say, you know what, I want to be like Cornelius. I don't want to just love my family and believe the Bible. I want those two to come together so that my family and my close relatives and loved ones hear from me, the gospel. So guys, what I'm after is two things. Here's what I'm after. I've not done next week's message. I don't ever have time to do two or three weeks of preparation, right? I don't know where next week's message is going. I'm going to throw you a hint. If it goes how it should happen... We should get down to the essence, I mean reduce the sauce. We should get to the essence of the essence of how to be saved. And so I'm going to just throw it out to you. If there's anybody in your life 
Even if they're like on the borderline in the children's ministry. And you're like, they need to come. Apparently, the message of salvation should be reduced down to its essence next week. You may have somebody in your family that's a loved one or a close friend, and you know they've never heard the gospel. Would you be like Cornelius and invite them to come next week? But the other part of that is this. Listen, there is power in biblical public preaching. But there is inherent power in your position, particularly you who are parents. If you are a parent, you have inerrant power. If you were to give this message, you say, I'm not really good at it. We have this thing we've been talking about, a four-lesson Bible study. You don't have to be a scholar. Just get people in it. Somebody got saved just last, last night. A couple in our church led their neighbor to Christ by going through. They didn't get through chapter 1. Mike led one of our young people to the Lord. Didn't get through chapter 1 just recently. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. Just say, you know what? My family, my loved ones, they're going to hear it from me. If you're a grandparent, you have the power. Use it. If you're a child and your parents are older and they're about to die, you've got some power. If you're a brother or a sister, you've got some power. Use it. They may deny it. They may reject it. But don't let them die and go, boy, I wish somebody would have told them. Cornelius says, you've got to get there. I don't know that, what to tell you. Somebody's coming who's going to tell I'm talking about two things. Invite them and learn how to share it yourself. Verse 25. So they arrived. Peter entered. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him like, what? Hey, buddy, whoa, whoa, whoa. Cornelius, I've been bragging on you for three weeks. What are you doing? Get up. Why is he doing this? I'm using more quotes this week than I normally do. I'm borrowing again a second time from Ivor Powell. Y'all ready? Why is he doing this? Here we go. He offers. Cornelius. Having seen an angel from God, the centurion probably thought Peter to be another messenger of the same importance. Catch it. He's seen an angel from God. This angel says, send for Peter. He knows Peter's coming. Peter arrives. Which one of you is Peter? You, pow, down he goes. Why are you doing this? Having already seen an angel from God, the centurion probably thought Peter to be another messenger of the same importance. In fact, Powell goes further. He says, perhaps he even considered Peter to be greater than the angelic messenger since he was about to impart knowledge that the angel did not give. Does that make sense? Like... You, I'm supposed to send for him. You're not going to actually tell me how to begin. I'm supposed to send for him. He sins, and here he comes. Maybe in his mind he's thinking, you terrified me. We saw that in, chapter, in the first part of it. You terrified me. Who's this person that's coming? Oh, you're Peter. And he falls down thinking, you must be greater than him because he says you're going to be the one that tells. And by the way, is that accurate or not? Is Peter greater than this? In the whole scheme of things? Yes, he is. Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He outranks this angelic person. Bless his heart, all he knows to do is fall down and start worshiping. I'm almost done with the second point. We're noticing his love and his humility. Listen, five things about Cornelius. This is astounding. That this man falls down and worships at, at the feet of Peter. This is astounding. Why? 
Number one, he's a man. And by that I mean a, an adult male. That's one. This is astounding because he's a man. Number two, he's a military man. Military. A lot of testosterone. A lot of bravado. Number three, he's not just any military man. He's a commander of 100 trained killers. Number four, the nation that he's a commander in their army rules over Peter's nation. The Romans, Cornelius' nation, rules over Peter's nation. And number five, Cornelius' family and close relatives and close friends are just right over there. I'm not saying all the time. Most men hate being put in positions where they appear vulnerable. And if they're going to be in a position where there's something that's going to happen that's going to be very humbling, a humbling event, usually we want privacy. Which one? Hey, which one of you is Peter? She, hey, you mind coming around the corner? Can we do this over here? Yeah, that's like, yeah, yeah. Hey, tell them we'll be in there in a minute. Go ahead and start on the chips and salsa. Oh, what do I need to do? This guy invites his family to watch him repent. When I get on my face, you got to be there. I love this guy. You got to be there when I fall on my face. That's humility. So what we can do, we can, we can do two things at once. We can identify, man, we're going to identify, and we're denouncing your idolatry, Cornelius. That's idolatry, you're sinning. But we can also identify and admire his humility. The Roman is on his face before the Jew. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Number three. Would you notice Peter's proper view of self? Do you see it? Verse 26. So this guy falls down at his feet. Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I too am a man. Probably went something like this. Which one is Peter? That, that'd be me. <laughs> hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. hey, hey. Whoa. <laughs> You see that? It's like, hey, 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 you, 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 got, you got to stop that. We're, whoa, we're not doing that. Why not? I'm a man. I'm just like you. Peter knows by himself, of himself, apart from Christ, apart from the grace of God, I'm no better than you. God's shown me this. I'm not better than you. You're just a man. I'm just a man. Just a man here. That's all. Stuart Custer words it this way. You have several references, and they're really accurate to his point. Custer writes, quote, Peter, like every other good man in Scripture, refused the worship. Worship was offered, got a man at his feet, a Roman soldier. About time these Romans bowed down to we Jews, not in Peter's mind. Custer writes, Peter, like every other good man in Scripture, refused the worship. He offers evil men and the devil may relish such an opportunity, but good men and angels honor God. Good men and angels always honor God. And you see those references. Acts chapter number 12, we'll get there eventually. What we find is this man named Herod, one of the Herods. He's going to give a big speech and everybody's going to say, Wow, you have the voice of a God. Wow, to hear you talk, it's like the gods are speaking. And he's going to soak it all up and he's going to wallow in it. He's going to love it and it's going to cost him dearly. You see, Matthew chapter number 4, what do we find there? Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. He's being tempted in the wilderness. And paraphrasing here, it's like Satan says, you know what I want to see? I want to see those knees bend. I want to see you get down in front of me. If you'll worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of heaven. 
Satan loves to be worshipped. Wicked men love to be made much of. But good men and angels, Acts chapter 14, you're going to find Paul and Barnabas. A whole city is going to come out and try to worship them. And they're going to be like, stop it. No, don't do it. We are men just like you. Then you see the last chapter in the book of the Bible, Revelation 28. Here's John the Revelator getting all this revelation from this angelic being. And John falls down here in verses 8 and 9 and starts worshiping this creature. And this, this creature says, stop. I am just like you. I'm just a servant of God. Good men and angels will not receive adoration that belongs to God. I notice something and I throw it out. Mainly to me, but also to you to check your heart. I sometimes sense things get out of balance. I say, what do you mean? Sometimes religious leaders get far too comfortable with the praise of mankind. See, what do you mean religious leaders? Pastors, evangelists, ministry leaders, conference speakers, professors in schools, authors of books, singers. And you just feel people just worshiping them. And they kind of like it. I want you to hear all that I have to say, and I'll move on to the next point. I want you to hear everything here. Listen. We should give honor to whom honor is due. I could back that up with Scripture. I could back that up in 1 Timothy 5. I could back that up in Romans 13, other places, Peter's books. Hear me. We should give honor to whom honor is due. And we should encourage those whom God has used to be a blessing in our life and to help us grow spiritually. We should do that. But we got to know as we're doing that, there's a difference between honor, honoring and encouraging and worshiping. And those who are on the receiving end of those words have to be careful of two things. Don't let it turn to pride on the inside and constantly be turning it back to the praise of God. That has to happen. That balance. Yes, give honor to whom honor is due. Yes, encourage those God's used to help you grow spiritually. Deanna and I have had different people help us grow in our spiritual walk through the years. I've had people, she's had people, some, sometimes we've had the same people. And I hesitate to say this about somebody that's still alive because they could blow it, right? <laughs> they could blow it if you brag on them. He's not dead yet, but Chip Ingram is one of those people in our lives God has used. And so literally last month, in September, she and I were, were in a position. We were at a seminar, a pastor's wife and, and pastor's seminar, and he was our speaker for three days. And we got a chance to share how God had used him in our life. Uh, it was the second night. It was at the end. It was probably about 9 o'clock. There's only about 250 of us. We had not caught him yet. Session just finished. They did the final amen. And Chip was first one out heading to the frozen yogurt thing. And Deanna made an absolute beeline. Like, I'm getting, I'm going, I'm going. But she, so she made a beeline. And she just unloaded on the poor guy. She, but it was all right. It literally, it was right. She, it wasn't just, oh, Chip. No, it was, a, you've taught this. You've taught this. You've taught this. I'm using it here. I'm using it here. God has used this. By, and you just see him like, pow, pow, pow. Like, who is this? Is this your wife? Like, what is going on? And it was boom, boom, boom. And then I didn't know it. She caught a quick picture of, of me talking to him for a second. And I was just sharing, much more decaffeinated. Man, you've been a blessing to me as well. <laughs> You want to know my favorite thing of that whole thing? He was totally uncomfortable. 
he wasn't comfortable. And got a picture of them, and you could tell it was about, I don't think the hands even touching her shoulders. Like, it's like, I love that he was uncomfortable. It was all true. Number four. I love Peter's realistic view of himself. I'm just a man. Hey, let me give you a secret about pastors and evangelists, conference speakers, singers. They're just people. They got the same exact struggles you do, promise you. Number four. Verses 25 to 29. Would you look at verse 25? We're going back there just for a moment. Would you look at it? When Peter entered. Uh Uh-oh, this is important. Peter entered. Look down at verse 28. And he said to them, after talking and straightening Cornelius, you've got to stop this worshiping thing, I'm just a man. And he said to them, you yourselves know. So finally he goes around, and he found many of them in the room. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. You know how unlawful. What does that mean? Hey, y'all know how unlawful this is. You're breaking the law? Which law? Mental note. Unlawful in verse 28 does not mean that Peter is breaking the law of Moses. He is not violating any actual specific law in the Bible. No biblical command. No Old Testament command. What he's breaking are the oral Jewish traditions that they had built up that made Gentiles like totally unappropriate. They were so scared that Gentiles may eat something that was unclean and it may end up rubbing off on them. They literally would like have nothing to do with us at all. It was like very much shunning, sometimes even hatred. And so Peter begins by saying, y'all do understand what I'm doing is considered by many people. Then why are you doing it? Because for 51 hours, the meaning of the vision and the command of God, the Holy Spirit had sunk in and he finally realized, we're not any better than you. God has said that you are now candidates to become clean through Christ. And so the meaning of the vision is really sinking in. Listen to me. But there's levels of what Peter does. It is one thing if in verse 23, it's important, It's one thing if Peter invites Gentiles into the house he's lodging in and entertains them as his guests. That, that's big time. That's one thing. But it's a whole other level to find himself in the house of a Gentile Roman centurion filled with other Gentiles. That's like whole other level. What are you doing? In fact, I want you to note a word. It's in verse, what what verse is it? Let me find it. Verse 27. Let me back. Uh, yeah, it's in verse 27. Look at it. And as he talked with him, he went in. The idea, apparently, they go around some, something that lets him see what's going on in the whole house. And he found many persons gathered. Would you write this just real quick? The word found there implies surprise. So he gets this man up. They have a conversation. Yes, would you please come on are you okay? You're comfortable coming on in? I believe, I believe Cornelius met him at the door and fell on his face at the door, probably thinking if he's Jewish, he's probably never coming in. All of a sudden, here Peter's coming in. He comes around. He sees the whole, and it's like this, like, whoa. Again, I'm reading between the lines, but it's like the word found means surprise. It's like, dude, you've been busy. I thought it was just going to be us. This is awesome. And then he goes into this. Hey, i got to make a confession. 
Y'all do know that under normal circumstances, I would never be in a house like this with people like you. That will win you some friends. Hey, just so you know, normal circumstances, I'd never be in a house like this with people like you. But listen, I'm not saying that to offend you, to make you mad at me, to make you think I think I'm better than you. Because listen, I don't. I don't say that so that you'll think I'm one of the good Jews. I'm one of the nice Jews who's willing to come into Gentile house. It isn't about all of that. Here's what, listen, I'm saying how unlawful it is. Because I want you to understand, God is doing something brand new and something massive. It is not that God has allowed me to be here. God has orchestrated the whole thing. And God has commanded me to be here. This is of God. I'm supposed to be here and I will be doing this. Maybe the most important part of this whole message is what you're about to write. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and warn you. Did I put an exclamation point on the next note? Three. Three exclamation. Why did I do that? Three exclamation points if you're watching at home. Because you're not going to feel it. It's going to sound so simple. It's going to sound simple. Get ready. It's going to sound simple. Hear it first. Don't worry about writing it. Not yet. Hear it. It may sound simple, but we must not miss the great example that Peter gives us. So what is it? Peter sets a tremendous example because he lets a clear revelation of God, the vision on the roof, once it was cleared up, and a clear command from God, here it comes, it's simple. He sets a great revelation, a great example for us because he lets a clear revelation and a clear command of God immediately, that's key word, immediately impact his actions. That sounds so simple. Once this man knew, when the Holy Spirit on the roof said, there's three men, they're from me. Go with them. Don't feel guilty. Don't have a, don't have a check in your conscience. I'm, I'm over this. I want you to do it. Once he knows God's will, what does he do? He invites Gentiles into his house. He hosts them as his guest. He travels with them on a journey. He ends up going into the house of a Gentile that is full of other Gentiles. And here's why that's such a simple note and why we don't get it. He's doing something that he had never done in his life, assuming he's 35 or 40 years old. Feel this. For his whole life, he's never done this. But as soon, here's the key, as soon as he knows it's God's will, he starts doing it. Like immediately puts the action into his life. That's big time. That's a massive example. Say, really? Newsflash. The goal, the call, is not to spend your life reading the Bible and studying the Bible and listening to Bible teaching and listening to Bible preaching. That is not the point. The point is to spend your life reading the Bible and studying the Bible and listening to Biblical teaching and preaching so that when God reveals truth to you, you will put it into your life and let it affect you immediately. Immediately. I like this guy, Peter. He's growing. He's not Paul, but he's growing. He's growing on me. I like him a lot. This is big time. He just flipped the script, man. Never done that in my life. And God says, go with him. 
Okay. You boys come on in. Like in there. Come on in. He's having us. He must not know. Oh, I know who you are. I know what you are. Got to ask you some questions. And you need to do this. What would change in your life that's been part of your life? What would change immediately if you actually applied the truth that you already have heard? You say, nothing, I'm doing it all. Do y'all know that probably in this room, probably watching online right now, there's probably someone in this room who many, many times in their life has heard this. If you'll confess your sins to Jesus and ask God to save you and believe that he will, you'll go to heaven for eternity. You've heard that over and over, but you've never done it. I hope this person doesn't mind me. I'll not embarrass them by saying that three people will know who I'm talking about. Two weeks ago, I'm, I, I had something happen three weeks ago, or two weeks ago I've never had happen in my life. Someone after church showed interest and wanted to become a Christian. So I went to my office, and I wanted to make sure, like, hey, is this something you're wanting to do? Nobody else is pressuring. Like, no, I want to do this. And so I did what I normally do. I said, let me ask you. I just need to know where you're at already. What do you think it takes to have your sins forgiven and go to heaven? Live with God forever. What do you think has to happen? You know what the person said? <laughs> said, I guess I'd have to ask Jesus to come into my life and save me. I said, you mind if I write that down? No, 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 that's fine. I wrote that down and I said, what was my next question? Is there anything else that you would say has to happen? You know what they said? No, that's pretty much it. I just asked you, what do you think you have to do to go to heaven? You told me I'd have to ask Jesus into my heart. And that's a, a, that's a word phrase we use that's not in the Bible, but we get the idea. And I would have to ask him to save me. And I said, I'm not going to try. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I just need to ask you something. You just told me that's your answer, and I asked you what else, and you said, nope, that's pretty much it. So I've got to ask you, have you ever done that? You know what the person said? No. You just gave me that answer, but you've never done it. I said, why? And just in innocence, and I love the humility, right there in front of family, kind of like Cornelius, family was sitting right there in the room. It was like, I just didn't know if I'd do it the right way. And then they asked Christ to save them a few minutes later. There's probably somebody in this room. You've heard the revelation of God, but you've just never let it actually impact your life. I'm not going to harp on it again. There's probably Christians. I'm sure there are Christians. You've heard me hit for two weeks in a row and multiple times in the past this idea of if Romans 6, if you'll understand, you don't have to sin. You've, you're dead to sin because of Christ. But if you'll consider you don't have to sin when it starts tempting you, and if you'll be busy giving your eyes and ears and mouth and hands and feet, busy as instruments of righteousness for God, you will have victory over sin. There are people here right now, you've heard that, and if you were to actually apply that, it would like change your life. What area of your life, if you were to take the truth you've already heard and actually apply it, it would like... There are people, you have tucked away somewhere some verses about prayer, front and back. And you, if you were to just go home and just take that and literally start putting it into practice, you'd come back in a week or two going, this is amazing. 
How come nobody ever told me to do this? Like, like my prayers. I'm actually praying now. Like, this is crazy. I'm putting this truth about. Yeah, we, we tried to say that many, many times, but I'm glad you finally did it. <laughs> is there somebody here this morning? This is you. You live so full of anxiety. If you were to go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, and just hear what the Bible says. Be anxious. I'm having to use this lately. I'm going to go into why. I'm having to use this. I'm running to Philippians 4, 6 a lot. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We know that, but if we'll apply it. In the spirit of today's text, can I hit this one? Who, watching online, who's sitting here this morning, don't raise your hand, you know your heart. Racism has been part of your life. It's been part of your whole life. And you know what I mean. You got it honest. From day one in your house, you heard awful perspective and awful language. And it has affected the way you live. But if you were to go home and just look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18, that says the middle wall of partition is broken down. In the church, there is no Jew and Gentile and Jew and Samaritans. And there's no white Christians and there's no... Hispanic Christians and Asian Christians and African Christians, there's Christians. And it, right now, in your heart, is there somebody, don't raise your hand, is there somebody like you really have got it honest, but if you would just really apply that truth, you would immediately no longer have that. I mean, just like, it's time, it's time to kill it. You're like, you don't know what I grew up in, it was in my this and that and all around me. I get it, but it's time to kill it. Got to apply it immediately. Like, why have I not done this? Do it right now. And then lastly, here's our last thought. And it's brief, and it sets up for next week, and it's the confirmation from Cornelius' testimony. Peter's like, okay, I, before I launch, I need to know what, what all's going on. And Cornelius says, well, four days ago, I was in my house, and I was praying. This angel appeared. He looked like a, bright, a, a man wearing bright clothing. And he said, hey, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. Now, I know I preached on this two weeks ago, and I briefly alluded to it at the opening. So, I'm just going to hit it again. You ready? Look at verse 31. The angel, this brightly clothed person that looks like a man. We know it's an angel from early in the chapter, in the middle of the chapter. This being says, quote, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Please get it. Everybody listen. Watch. Cornelius. Yes, your prayer has been heard. God has heard your prayer. He didn't do this. Okay, good to know. Thanks. All right, just, just letting you know. God's heard your prayer. All right, see you. No, here's the clue. Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Send therefore. What does that mean? I don't know if anybody in here will get this. I'm going to throw it out. God's answer to Cornelius' prayer is your prayer's been heard. Okay? Send therefore. You want your answer? Send there. The an God's answer to Cornelius' prayer is what? Or maybe not even a what. Peter. 
The answer to your prayer is a person. Well, why don't you just, I don't tell you that. Send for him. He's going to tell you. Hear that again. The answer to this man's prayer is a person. Could it be that there are people offering prayers and we're the answer to their prayer? We're God's answer to their prayer. Are you God's answer to someone's prayer? Peter was. Would you write this down? The words, your prayer has been heard, does not mean that Cornelius, that God heard Cornelius' random prayer request as an unsaved man. No, it doesn't. What it means is that God heard his specific prayer request for more spiritual light because Cornelius knows I'm not right with God. I'm unsaved. I'm doing everything I know to do, but I need more light. And so he's been asking this prayer, and finally here this angel comes and says, Hey, Cornelius, good news. God's been hearing that prayer, and the answer is you need to send for Peter, and he's going to give you what you need to know. And that sets up our last note. And I, I, I almost apologize for the negative aspect of this note. I'm just throwing it out, something that's a, my second paradox. I gave you this other paradox, this strange dynamic among Christians. I'm going to give you another one here. Here's this unsaved man that we know, according to verse number 2, prayed continually to God. And we've also noted in that first message, God does not hear the prayers of unsaved people. He hears one prayer of unsaved people, the prayer that's like, God, I'm not right with you, and I don't know how to be right with you. Would you please reveal how to get right with you? God will hear that prayer, but he doesn't hear your prayer to heal your child or your parents or to give you a raise. Or God doesn't hear all those prayers of the unsaved person because prayer is reserved for Christians. Prayer is reserved for those who come in the name of Jesus. And yet here, would you write this down? In one of life's strange paradoxes, some unsaved people who can't pray try. While many Christians who can pray don't try. Isn't that odd? That is weird. I'm not saying there's a bunch of unsaved people out there trying to pray. I'm saying there are some unsaved people that are real, they, they don't feel anything. They don't get specific answers. But they're having a time. They have a time. They set aside and they say their prayers. And they can't really pray. But they're trying. Meanwhile, Christians who can pray aren't. Weird. I'll leave you with this thought. It's verse 33. I came without objection. I need to know what in the world's going on. Here's what Cornelius says. This and this and this happened, and we're all here. Do you see verse 33? So I sent for you at once. You've been kind enough to come. Thank you so much for coming, Peter. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. You ready? Here's the final. Here's the finale of today, and this sets for next week. This man and his family and close friends are the model congregation. They are the best. They are the perfect congregation. Say, why? They're all present. (laughs) We're all here. Two, they are ready to listen. And if you'll come next week, what you're going to see, listen, they are so in tune. We are ready to listen. When this man, Peter, starts preaching the gospel, they are so much tracking. They are tracking with everything he says. They're actually doing it as he speaks. This is the perfect congregation. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Is there something in your life that the Lord touched in your heart that needs to change immediately if you were to implement the truth that he's shown you? Like, was it one of those categories? Is there something like, wow, God's been saying this in in his word. I know it's true. Why don't I be like Peter? I need to act on it. I just need to start 
let it affect my actions immediately. Are you supposed to be the answer to God's prayer in someone's life? Are you the answer to someone's prayer? How? What are you supposed to do? Somebody's out there praying. They're asking God, and they don't, they're not thinking of you, but God is saying, yep, you're actually it. You're the answer. Two more quick thoughts. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Is there someone that you need to give the gospel to that you have a powerful position in their life? And you know what? They, they really need to hear it from you. And you're like, that's just not my thing. Do you just need to say, hey, get me one of those Bible studies. I want to go through it. I, I need to go through it with my son or my daughter, my brother, my sister, my mom or my dad. My best friend. I need, I need, I need to go through that. I want to be like Cornelius. And is there somebody in your life that God would say, you know what, I want you to invite them next week. Be like Cornelius. The essence of the gospel should be preached next week. How do we get saved? I mean, boiling it down. And if that's going to happen, is there somebody you need to invite? Father, I pray that you would use today's message. Burn it into us. Thank you for these two great examples. Thank you for the humility of both of these men, for the love of Cornelius, and for the immediate obedience of Peter. Let us do that this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week. Enjoy your home groups.